Now, before we read from God's word, let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies, and I pray that you would show us who you are, show us what you've done, and teach us how to live. In Jesus' name, amen. This is from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalai Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And God was angry because the Lord had, and David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Amen. Well, your life as a follower of Christ, if that's who you are, um, would be more meaningful and perhaps more genuine and compelling if um, you didn't take Scripture so lightly. And what I mean by that is that if you let profoundly disturbing passages like this bother you a little bit, we're tempted after generations in the church to gloss over the uh, remarkable severity of God that breaks out at times, in this case against Uzzah, Perez Uzzah means breaks out against Uzzah. It's my experience and pastoral, personally and pastoral opinion that um, no one is really engaging the Bible for what it says, for what it is, if you don't have five or maybe more teachings or passages that trouble you, that maybe you wish weren't even there but that you accept because they're in God's word. 
You know, we've not domesticated the scripture. And some of our critics are um, correct to ask us why we can be so casual about a man named Uzzah who did a natural thing and was judged by God with death. That's a very good question. And it says something about us that, us meaning folks that come to church all the time or folks that work at the church, that we just run right past a passage like this. So we're not going to do that today. I'm going to ask actually uh, five questions today that I think are natural from this text. And I'll give those to you in a moment, and then we'll go through them one by one, because this text should raise questions. The first is, what is going on when this happened? The second is, was God's reaction to Uzzah mean or evil? The third is, is it okay to be troubled by this? The fourth is, is God a curse or a blessing? And the last one is, didn't Jesus change all this? What's going on? Was God mean or evil? Is it okay to be troubled? Is God a curse or a blessing? Didn't Jesus change all this? And what you'll find if you're exploring Christianity or if you want to get serious about it after you've found it, what you'll find is that um, God welcomes our questions and even encourages our questions but, and has answers for our questions. But, but fundamentally, we should understand this. God doesn't answer to anyone because he's God. And there is no appeal beyond what he says and what he does. And he says and does things that are troublesome, that can't be made to sound good. You realize God has said things that he knows can never sound good and done things that he knows we can't explain away, even though there are theological constructs to give them some context. As Francis Schaeffer said, God insists on the godness of God. And so let's take a look. What is going on here? Let's ask the first question. What happened? The last mention of the ark is in the first book of Samuel. And it's sitting at this man's house, Abinadab's home. And it had been there by this time, now for about 50 years. So imagine the ark of God um, stashed away in somebody's house during the 1970s. And it's just sitting there. Doing what we don't know, being attended in what fashion, we're never really told. But what's most important is not where it is, but how it got there. And this will be an important part of understanding the rest of the story. It got there because Israel used it as a charm and lost it to their enemies who used it as a trophy. And God was not pleased with any of that. The very first priest is a careless man named Levi in the book of um, 1 Samuel. And he had two sons who were worse than careless. They were just rogues, Hophni and Phinehas. 
and they wanted to defeat the Philistines, and they said, let's march out the Ark of the Covenant. They must have seen, um, you know, the movie, and they just marched it out there, and um, God let them be defeated for their presumption, and the very enemies took the Ark. They used it as a charm. The Philistines used it as a trophy, and God judged them both. The Philistines um, had um, were judged with Again, a troublesome passage. We're judged with illnesses, and uh, then they brought it back and sent it home, and it just got stashed away like the lost ark in, in the government warehouse somewhere for ages or for a couple generations at least. So that's the context when David, who importantly is right at... Um, the, the near ultimate triumph of his ministry, he's finally been crowned king of all of Israel. If you remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, he has taken Jerusalem and established it as, as his center of government. And what's the next move for the king of Israel except to go to Abinadab's house and get that ark and march it back up to Jerusalem? So this is a significant moment. He gathered 30,000 chosen military men, and he marched up. All that was left after the temple, after the, the ark would make its way to Jerusalem was to build a temple, which if you know the story, and we'll learn it later on, it's okay if you don't. He tries to do that, and God sort of gives him the Heisman and says, no, it's not going to be you. It's going to be somebody else. So David, David is fulfilling his program as a king. But as we're going to see in a moment, David has a little bit of Hophni and Phinehas in him. David's co-opting, although like the rest of us, the good David and the bad David, the David's good motives and David's bad motives create a, a spiritual Venn diagram, you know, that, that just overlap and it's hard to see where one starts and the other one ends. Um, but uh, David is leveraging the ark for good and not good purposes, just like I've leveraged my ministry for good and my training and not good purposes, just like you have done with your money and so have I and your relationships and your positions and everything else. But David does this with the ark, with the ark of the covenant. Listen to this. Uh, we do this all the time in the American church. Listen to this quote from um, uh, President Reagan. I've quoted John Winthrop's words more than once on the campaign trail this year, for I believe that America in 1980 is every bit as committed to that vision of a shining city on a hill as we were, as were those long settlers long ago. Here's another politician. That was the night before the election in '80. It was right here in the waters around us where the American experiment began. The earliest settlers arrived on the shores of Boston and Salem and Plymouth, and they dreamed of building a city on a hill. And the world watched. That was Barack Obama running for Senate. You know, you do a little search on that, and you can find that pretty much every single president in the 20th century has quoted that. And you can, by the way, little parentheses, Read the whole letter, by the way, <laughs> Winthrop's whole letter. He sort of calls it out. He says, if we, if we mess this up, 
God's going to get us. So read the whole letter, but you can look that up too. What I'm trying to say is that there's a temptation from the church on the right and the church on the left, from the state on the right and the state on the left, to co-opt, as it were, um, God for our business. That's what we do. Of course, in a way, we want to do that because who wants to do stuff that God's not supportive of? Not a Christian. But it's always how we do it and why we do it. And that's exactly what's happening with David and that's going to be a trouble in this. It's going to lead to trouble in this passage. So with that context, what's happening here, um, David's fulfilling his program for good and for bad reasons. But now we need to ask this question, um, was God's reaction to Uzzah mean or evil? And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand in the ark of God um, onto the ark of God and took hold of it for the oxen had stumbled and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down there because of his error and he died beside the ark of God. So what was the error exactly? Well, it's, I think, important and instructive in a very ambivalent way that that word for error is only used here in all of the Hebrew scriptures. It's really difficult to understand what it means except to know that you don't want to commit it. So we never really exactly know what's at the heart. We, we're going to talk more about it, but we don't, we don't exactly know. But this is what we do know. Uzzah's actions are instinctive, they're unpretentious, there's no indication of hubris or disrespect, Um, there's no indication of flippancy, he grew up with this ark somewhere on his family's property, they might have considered themselves caretakers of it for his entire life, he was a man, he was a son, We can imagine that he was likely a husband, maybe even a father. And he commits an error. And like a backdraft in a burning house that sucks new air to a starving inferno, the spiritual physics of God's sovereign holiness break out and strike him down. And that should trouble you. Because if it doesn't trouble you, um, I don't know why you would be troubled that God crucified his own son for you. It's reminiscent of a story about a man named Nadab and Abihu earlier in the Bible, the sons of another, uh, of Aaron, uh, who took a censer and put fire and laid incense in it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord. They just made up a fire before God. They thought, well, God likes fire. He likes incense. We'll do this. And God broke out against them too. So now we're starting to see um, some of the uh, severity of God and how troublesome it can be. He uh, He made an example out of a man. In the context of what? Well, in the context of his king's political presumption on the patience of God, as we've seen. 
We've explored that already. And, and that presumption and its um, offensiveness to turn our Savior and his Father and the Holy Spirit into talisman that protects and keeps and provides for us. And he makes this procession of royalty and commoners and lay people and priests and worship. David has uh, also completely ignored God's instructions about how his ark is to be moved. God was very specific about how the ark was to be moved. And this episode disregards every single one of those instructions. It was to be moved only by a selected subset of priests. It was to be um, carried on on poles covered with gold. It was to have a, a sacred cloth over it. There were two angels over it touching wings. And David disregarded all of that in this careless, presumptive, co-opting of the ark of God. And when David did that, When David did that, listen to Isaiah explain something about what David was doing, even though in this passage, Isaiah is not talking about David, but he's talking about the idols of the world. Bell bows down, Nebo stoops, their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. God had his image bearers who were priests carry his ark. And David disregards all this. So I don't know that I've answered the question um, yet because um, in a sense we can say this is certainly not kind. It's most definitely not gentle. But the only answer to the question about whether or not it's evil is whether or not you believe God can be evil and whether or not you or I believe that our own personal moral sensibilities are significant enough and accurate enough and authoritative enough to determine that when God does something, we can decide he shouldn't have. Well, the message of the church and the message of its Savior has always been that, yes, God can do as he pleases. God sits enthroned in heaven and does whatever he likes. And that includes in your life and my life with your children and my children, your grandchildren and my grandchildren, your career and my career, your dreams and my dreams, your friends and my friends, your country and my country your city and my city, your school and my school, your everything and my everything. So the scripture has an answer to whether or not God is evil and the answer is no, and nothing he does is evil. God is good. But you will have to come to terms with that at all. And I would say this though, unless God can do as he pleases, everything we do on Sunday morning is uh, pretty much our version of the uh, Olympic opening ceremonies. Which are becoming increasingly liturgical. And I, I don't, 
I don't watch them anymore just because they're beautiful sometimes, but they're so doxological to something. Certainly not something that could do whatever that something wants to whoever is in the parade. And our critics in the world are right to ask us why we skim past these passages and don't understand how profoundly disturbing they are supposed to be. I read an article um, just a couple days ago about these two, these uh, number of academics who study American evangelicalism who, who went to, in Kentucky, evidently there's a big, like, full-size ark. Did you know this? Like, there's an ark there. And, and they went and studied it, and, uh, you know, they're not really into the ark. They're not into, the, they're not into any of that, you know, but they are biblical scholars. But, and, and, but they did analyze how casually people walked around talking about the ark story which is a terrifying story. It's on my list of those things that I find troubling, but I know are true. And I know God's not worried about trying to answer me on that front. But when I say that it troubles me, that leads us to our third question. Is it okay to be disturbed by this? Well, let's look at David. David was angry because the Lord broke out against Uzzah. And then in verse 9, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David had a problem with this. David has more of a problem with this than most evangelicals do when we read it. Of course, he was right there. He surely felt responsible for it. But the whole concept disturbed him and sent him into a reflective retreat for 90 days, for three months. He was angry and he was afraid and I think he was also bewildered. Part of the um, impact of embracing and acknowledging the severity of God is that it discombobulates us in his presence, which, by the way, would do us well to see Christ as our comfort and security, but also to see the severity of his death and the power of his resurrection as an indication that it is no small thing to fall into the hands of the living God even if they're pierced. There's a passage in the New Testament, um, the the Greek part of the scriptures that says, we we might, some folks who are, um, might be saved as though through fire. And I was in a seminary class once and one of my fellow students raised uh, their hand and said, Dr. Raymond, what does that mean to be saved through fire? And Dr. Raymond, who was no dummy, said, I don't know, but I sure don't want it to happen to me. Neither do I. The question is not, should you struggle? 
there is a good question about whether or not you struggle because we're, um, we, we don't see the scripture in its vitality and concrete truth as we should. We have domesticated it in so many ways. But the real question is, what does your struggle lead you to? Rejection. I cannot believe that there, God is like that. Um, that's, a, that's common, in some ways more honest than the way a lot of church folks deal with a passage like this. But, um, and it, it deserves to be heard and it deserves to be processed and listened to. But in that time of listening and processing and asking and doing our best to answer questions, it must be discovered by the one who makes the statement that they're making a statement fundamentally about themselves, not about morality or not about God. It's, that's a statement about one's own um, temperament and perspective, which is fine if that's where the anchor of our authority lands. But it's not strictly speaking a moral statement. This is what it is. Um, C.S. Lewis, famous um, quote, the ancient man approached God or even his gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For modern man, the roles are quite reversed. Modern man is the judge. God is in the dock, meaning the, the witness stand or the accused stand. Now, modern man is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being God who permits war, poverty, disease, he is ready to listen. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And I've been doing church stuff, as I've mentioned before, I'm a professional Christian. And I've been working in the church world for 35 years and um, if you think it's only the secular unbelievers that have God in the dock, you must be in a different church than I'm in. Because we all do. So that, I know this is taking a little while, um, but I'm running out of Sundays here, so I gotta, gotta catch up. Um, so, it is okay to be troubled. The question is, it's natural to be troubled. Uh, simply because of uh, two reasons. One, a godly loving person should be troubled by people's suffering, even at the hands of God. The second one is, we're not just godly loving people, and we respond uh, also in unbelief to that kind of stuff. The question is, where does it lead you? And if it leads you to believe that your questions deserve an answer from God because God must answer to you, well, then I would say it's led you into a wrong place. So is God a blessing or a curse? Well, that's a, that's a question David spent 90 days trying to figure out because he thought, well, God can't come to me. I can't go to God. What is going on? And uh, then he finds out that Obed-Edom's house is being enriched with blessings because of God's presence. God's presence that just exerted judgment in, in Obed-Edom's house um, overflows with blessings. So which is God? Is God a blessing or a curse? Well, 
that depends on in what relationship you have or you are with God. He is the one who cursed the ground. He is the one who would judge the world. He is the one who would forgive those in Christ. So we have a choice once we're, we're troubled and try to figure out what, what our relationship with God is. We have a choice. God is severe and he tells us who he is and he shows us both his severe kindness and grace and his severe judgment and wrath. He shows us all those things most fully in the very same moment at the crucifixion of his son so that we might decide to which one we will run. If you think you run to Christ because you want the kind God, the only reason you find a kind God in Christ is because he was also a severe and wrathful God to Christ as well. You don't get the one or the other. David said, you've made known to me the path of life. You fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. That's our great hope. That's in Psalm 16. That's our great hope. And that hope is open to us by the severity of God in the crucifixion of his son. You know, the word holy is not used in this, in this passage, um, but this passage is full of... Um, the implications of God's holiness. In, in the Bible, it means weight or glory um, or, or glory or substance. It's become, um, it's become for, for us an important word. It, it's uh, reflective of his character, but one that we don't really know well how to meditate on and don't understand. We're, we're liable to think of God's holiness um, strictly in in terms of his moral purity which of course is part of his holiness but the the fullest measure of God's holiness moves includes that but is much more than that it's his his infinite and absolute otherness as well as his purity it's his total self-sufficiency as a being Imagine this, you have never seen a thing or a person. You have never seen any kind of being, whether alive or inanimate. You have never touched, tasted, seen anything that did not have its being and existence because of the will of another. And when we see in that mystery that the New Testament talks about God, we will see for the first time a being who exists of his own infinite and eternal will without dependence on anyone or anything. We will see the being behind all those beings and things that we've touched and tasted and seen. We will see, as it were, a fountain that is its own eternal and infinite source. 
We love the image of fountains because they come to us and they bring life over and over again. But we know on earth, every fountain has a fountain of its own. And we will go to the fountain of all that exists and the summation of all of his excellencies, unchanging and perfect, will be everywhere in all of him at all times. He is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. And he is all those things all the time, every moment, everywhere, not serially. He won't go through his glory like a slide deck and PowerPoint. It will all be right there before us. His love will be holy. His holiness will be gracious. His transcendence will be imminent. His imminence will be transcendent. And you and I, like Job, we will finally say, I thought I knew. I thought I understood. I had a thousand questions about a thousand things in a thousand parts of history and in my own life. And now I have seen God. And I know that he need not answer any of them. So didn't Jesus change this? Well, here's a a hint. I hope you're learning as we go through this. There's a lot more gospel in this passage than um, you might think or see at first. The, the first way we see this is that David, in, through his anger and through his fear and through his confusion, has found repentance. It, of course, there's some indication in this passage that he's learned that he's done things differently. But, but in the account of this story in another book called First Chronicles, Um, This is what David says to the priests when they're about to bring it back for the second time. You are the heads of the father's house of the Levites. Consecrate yourselves, you and your brothers, so that you may bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I have prepared for it, because you did not carry it the first time. The Lord our God broke out against us because we did not seek him according to the rule. So David is understood. Was David okay with what happened? Was he troubled by it? Yes. Where did David land with it? David understood. David landed with subjection and humility before God. And he called the priests and he said, we're going we're to do this in a different way. But there's two other elements that I want us to see briefly as we close. One is the emphasis on sacrifice. In our story, when David returns back to take the ark, um, we're told that they take six steps. It's an important number. It's the, really the, the approaching perfection of seven and then stopping short of it. It's often considered the, the number of humanity. So David moves the ark six steps and sacrifices a bull. It's interesting. There's a little parentheses. There's a lot of discussion from commentators, it sort of sounds like David sacrificed a bull every six steps all the way up to Jerusalem. 
which wouldn't be uncommon, but uh, we can't really know for sure, except to say this, that David understood that the presence of God required sacrifice. Repentance, sacrifice, and priesthood. There's the gospel. And where's the priesthood? Not just with these priests that took it up, but do you know, do you remember what David is wearing? What is David wearing? He's wearing an ephod. That's a priestly robe. David the king is wearing a priestly robe. That's actually not supposed to be done. But, but David, uh, as a prefigure of Christ, who was our priest and our king, um, follows the law of God, sacrifices for the mercy of God, and leads the people of God into the presence of God as our priest. And there is the hope of the gospel. How do you respond? Is it okay to be troubled? Most certainly it's okay to be troubled. It'd be good for your soul to be more troubled by what you read in the Bible. But where do you land? Where does it come? And just know this. The gospel makes God safe. It does not make him different. He is holy. He's the same. Today, yesterday, and forever. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I pray you would help us to um, know who you are to know what you've done, and to know how we should live. In Jesus' name, amen.